Uh, Shall we pray? Father God, now just as we look at your word uh, and all these verses that Francis has just read to us in this book of James, Father, we ask for uh, real open hearts that we would hear what you want to say to us, Father. I ask that my words may be uh, used by you for your glory. Lord, we will all hear what we need to hear, even if they're not spoken out loud. May your spirit whisper uh, and speak and urge and encourage each one of us into a deeper relationship with you. Challenge us, Lord, uh, where we've stopped. Encourage us to move on. And Lord, be with us now, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll start by asking you a question. Um, it's a rhetorical question, by the way. Um, otherwise, we'll be here all afternoon if you would answer it. Um, what are you like when things go wrong? I think I might have asked this a few weeks ago. Obviously, I wasn't happy with the answers I received then. But what do you like, what do you like when things go wrong? Maybe you, uh, you, you're diagnosed with some sort of illness, and it's not what you expect. It limits you somehow. Uh, maybe you lose your job, or maybe you don't get a promotion, or maybe your mortgage goes up a bit, or something happens. What do you like when things don't quite work out, and they go wrong, and you feel slightly under pressure? Are you, uh, are you a shouter? You know the people I mean, they... They go home and they make sure the windows are shut and the doors shut and then they shout because they think no one can hear. Are you a, maybe you're a swearer. You know, the air turns blue as things go wrong. Perhaps uh, things sort of roll off your tongue that you would never normally say. Are you a wall puncher? You know the sort of person like that. <clears throat> I'll just my phone wasn't underneath there. Where is my phone? That's good, it's all right. I'm not going to start shouting. <laughs> are you a wall puncher? Are you an eater? Things go wrong, all of that pizza, forget it, I'm starving, that's what I am, I think, well I've had a terrible day, let's have a takeaway. And uh, it doesn't matter how bad my day is, even, it can be quite low-key bad, but it's not any excuse for a, a doner kebab, frankly. Maybe you're a drinker, maybe you turn to a couple of glasses of wine or beer when things go wrong. Maybe you're a seether, maybe when you, uh, you kind of, things go wrong, you find yourself sort of going, and you're like a pressure cooker waiting to explode. Or maybe you're a blinker, you know the people I mean. Maybe you're one of those. Novelist James Lane Allen once said, adversity does not build character, it reveals it. And, uh, and if you're a parent here this morning, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, by adversity, of course, number one, how it reveals character. Before you have children, the majority of adults think, I'm pretty decent, I'm calm, you know, logical. I'm not prone to uh, stroppy outbursts of shouting uncontrollably for no real reason. I'm a pretty chilled out guy. And then... The Lord blesses you with this bundle of joy and uh, bones and skin and lungs and, uh, and they become the most unreasonable people you've ever met, don't they? And then rather than take the high road, the parents become equally as unreasonable and we discover that actually where once we thought highly of ourselves, we then realise that we're in fact stroppy and grumpy and unreasonable in every way. And I'm not actually sure you ever get over it. <laughs> That's it, I'll let you know in a few years' time. Um, in the next two weeks, we're looking at the book of James. And uh, you may be familiar with the book of James. Uh, the book of James, the letter of James, I should say, is just after Hebrews, sort of halfway through the New Testament. If you've got it open, that would be, be handy to have. Um, well, the, the verses will appear behind me. Uh, a letter written, uh, as generally agreed, it was written in the mid-40s AD. And uh, most people would say that the writer of James is the brother of Jesus himself. And that the, the writer of James is writing to displaced Christians who are from a Jewish background, so Jews who followed their Messiah, promised Messiah in the Old Testament, and they've become Christians, and they're scattered around, round and about the nation of Israel. So uh, most people agree that James is writing to displaced Christians who perhaps aren't where they felt they should be and having some trouble. 
And what seems to be happening in the book of James is the people he's addressing seem to be Christians who are having a slightly tough time. And what's happening in their adversity is it's revealing cracks in their spirituality. They're seeing that they're not, uh, their basic Christian issues are coming to the surface. And if you know the book of James, you'll know it's one issue after another, after another, after another. And it just goes on at them. He picks out these basic Christian flaws in their spirituality, displaced, revealing basic Christian spiritual issues. And that often happens to us, doesn't it? Uh, when things go wrong, suddenly that old part of us comes to the surface that we pretend we haven't got when we're here on a Sunday. We're very good at pretending with each other. Um, but something goes wrong and all it comes out, doesn't it, in its entirety. The letter of James is very popular. It's popular uh, with most people. Martin Luther, the great Martin Luther, the Reformation, famously referred to it as an epistle of straw. Uh, mainly because, unlike Romans and some of the letters of Paul, it doesn't appear to have very much theology in it. Um, he, he doesn't sort of expound great theological tomes in his letter, James. Um, however, what he does beautifully is weave the teachings of Jesus into his letters, into his words. He also actually uh, mirrors the Sermon on the Mount in terms of style as well. So actually, far from being just a, a weak, empty letter, it's actually delivered quite beautifully. It's a very popular letter for three reasons. The first is that James is very practical. I'm yet to meet a Christian, except Martin Luther, although I've not met him, um, who doesn't like the book of James, because it's practical. If you want to know what a Christian looks like and feels like, go and have a read of James. If you want to know the sort of things that you shouldn't be doing, go and have a read of James. If you want to know the sort of things you should be doing, go and have a read of the book of James. Second reason it's popular is it's concise. He doesn't really elaborate many points. He makes a point... And then moves on to the next one. Some people I know could do with uh, taking a leaf out of James's book. Um, but he's to the point, makes a point to the point, and moves on to the next point. It's more like a collection of proverbs than a great work of theology like some of Paul's writings. And the third thing is, it's understandable. He's got a heavy use of metaphors and illustrations. And I think it's a real lesson from the book of James into how we might communicate with people. How we might communicate the truths of God for those who are new to them. Rather than throwing Romans at them, um, actually, maybe we just we apply it. What he does, he takes theology, James, and he applies it wonderfully and practically. So people go, I get it. That's what being a follower of Christ looks like. And so there's a lesson there for us as we speak. So let's look at the message and the issues of the book of James. As we said, uh, these Christians are displaced, and it's showing up problems in the Christian community. But more worryingly, it's showing up issues in their faith. James speaks of their treatment of the poor. He speaks of their unity as brothers and sisters in Christ. He speaks very clearly about the use of the tongue and the damage it does to each other. And that's a real challenge. It's a real challenge for us as Christians, isn't it? Because this church doesn't just work when we're all having a good week. It doesn't only work when all our ministries are firing and all five cylinders and everything is ticking all the right boxes and smoothly flowing from one thing to the other. This community only works when we allow our faith to define our, our difficult times, not the other way around. We can't only be good Christians when the grass is green. It has to be in the dry times and the hard times. We must always be Christ-like, no matter what the day before has brought us. That's how this community will work. Chapter 2 um, holds the key issue for the book of James, and Francis kindly read it out for us, uh, that some people in this community claim to have a faith in Jesus Christ, but James says that the faith they have is not saving faith. 
Now, before I say anything else, some of you here would have already given your life to Jesus. You'll be able to say, well, on the 13th of October, I prayed a prayer and asked Christ into my life. And I believe he died on the cross and I said sorry for my sin. I asked him to be my king. You're a Christian. That's what becoming a Christian is. And so when I talk about faith being dead in a moment, I'm not necessarily saying that if you're having a bit of a rough patch in your Christian walk that you need to worry about not being a Christian. He's talking about a different category of people who claim to have this faith, but it actually hasn't gone very deep in their hearts. They've got a verbal profession that Jesus is Lord, but it hasn't gone down to the level of their heart and their soul. And so how can um, James say this? This key issue is that some of them have faith that isn't saving them because it's not gone to the level of their hearts. And how can James know that? How can he say to a group of people he's probably never met, Some of you have faith that is useless. How could he possibly say that? How could he possibly judge someone's level of uh, faith and whether they're saved or not? We're taught never to do that. Well, quite simply, James would say, because their deeds don't match their beliefs. In James' mind, it's very clear. Faith without deeds is dead. There is no middle ground for James. There's no, well, maybe... Faith without deeds is dead. And he's going to use that phrase over and over and over. Before we get to those verses, uh, there's a whole section that um, uh, these verses find themselves in. From chapter 1, verse 19, all the way through to chapter 2, verse 26, it's a section where James is talking about evidence for spirituality or spiritual wholeness. And I'll just uh, give you the others before. Verses 19 to 20, James talks about hasty speech. He says, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Spirituality, spiritual wholeness, is evidenced by how we use our tongue, how quick we are to speak, how slow we are to listen, or the other way around as it should be. We should be quick to listen and slow to speak. And James is saying, if, you're, if you claim to be a follower of Christ, you ought to listen more than you talk. Not the other way around. Not go all guns blazing, letting your tongue off to sharply injure people. And then he says in verse 21 to 27 that a sign of spirituality, spiritual wholeness, is obedience to God's word. We'll come back to these in a minute. Get rid of all moral filth. Accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at himself in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. As I get older, that doesn't seem like such a bad thing. (laughs) Thanks for disagreeing. Um, But that's what you're like. If you take the word of God into your heart and then you just think, oh yeah, love your enemy. And you see that person that gets on your nerves and you want to thump them. And he says, well, it's like you've looked in the mirror and then you've forgotten what you look like. How ridiculous is that? No one forgets what they look like. How can you forget the perfect word of God? That's a sign of spirituality, obedience to God's word. From verses 1 to 13 of chapter 2, discrimination against the poor, he says, suppose a man, James says, hang on, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man, filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but to the poor man, stand there and sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? A sign of spirituality 
is whether or not we discriminate against the poor. This church, it not to matter how you dress, how much money you have, what career you've got or not got, you can have absolutely nothing or absolutely everything and be treated equally in the house of God. That's how the church is supposed to behave. Who cares what you do? Who cares what you don't do? All that matters is that everybody is made in the image of God, and that is a sign of spiritual wholeness, spirituality. There's a wonderful, uh, well, sad story, really, of a vicar in a Church of England church who dressed up as a homeless man. He really went for it, smells and all, and, uh, and he came into his church one Sunday morning to see whether his church would practice what he preached. Oh, well, I think I've told the story before. No one spoke to him. He sat on his own with a nice big gap around him, and no one spoke to him. And he took off the outfit, revealed himself, and they all felt very shameful, as they should. Because it doesn't matter, does it? Someone can come in smelling of booze, stinking of all sorts. Someone can come in dressed in an Armani suit. Is that, do the people still wear those? That's probably old-fashioned now, isn't it? You can tell I'm sort of in the middle. Um, but it doesn't matter. should not matter one tiny bit. That's spiritual, that's spiritual wholeness. And then we get the section we're looking at this morning, verse 14 to 26, that saving faith is revealed through actions, through works. Before we sort of go down to it, some people think there's a real conflict with the Apostle Paul. Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament um, in the book of Ephesians, speaks about being saved by faith alone and not works. And a lot of people think that as James goes to talk about how can you have faith unless you've got works, that there's some sort of conflict. Paul's at pains to say to his readers, it's not what you do that saves you, it's who you believe in. Faith is what saves you. No one can work their way into a holy God's good books. No one can make themselves good enough for heaven. Paul says it's your faith that makes you righteous, not your works. But it would seem on a first reading that James is contradicting him. James is saying, well, faith without deeds is dead. You show your faith by your works. And when he gets to Abraham and Rahab, it seems to be a direct contradiction to what Paul has said. But actually, it's not. Because they're both talking about very different things. James is not saying that works are what save a person. What he's saying is genuine biblical faith will eventually be characterized by godly actions. He's not saying it's the works that save you. He's saying if you've been saved, the works will show it, will reveal your faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said you'll know a tree by its fruit. In our back garden, we've got, well, we had three uh, fruit trees, plum, apple, and pear, if you're interested. No? Don't take any interest in our lives. Anyway, um, three, and in the winter... Because I'm a bit of an ignoramus, I couldn't tell you what tree was what. I know now, because I've been there 10 years and I know where they are. But in that first year, I couldn't, I couldn't have told you which one was the plum tree, which was the apple tree, and which was the pear tree. Someone's bound to correct me after the service and say, well, you can tell by the bark or something. But I don't know. I tell because in the summer, the blossom goes and the fruit comes. That's an apple tree. Well, that's a, I need to say banana tree, but that's not right. Um, what's the other one I said? Plum, thank you. A plum tree. And then the third one, which I've forgotten. I did the quiz last night, by the way, just to say. Um, and it's, I've not felt good about myself since. I was in a team that came... Um, we came eighth. That's, yeah, we came eighth. Out of eight. <laughs> so none of us are feeling particularly good about ourselves this morning. Um, I, I Actually, I had one answer correct. Yeah, only one. I got the Mr. Tumble answer correct. And... Uh, <laughs> And the uh, king of Bhutan being the dragon king. I got that one right. My team ignored me. They claim they didn't hear me, but anyway, enough of that. 
Uh, that's bitterness. Oh no, James says something about that, doesn't he? Anyway, <laughs> so how can, how can James possibly, why is it a case that your deeds reveal your faith? Why is it that what you do shows what you believe? Why can't it just be that my faith is personal? People say my faith is it's just me, it's me, it's internal, it's my personal beliefs. And no one needs to know, it's just me and God and that's okay. Uh, bad news is not. Because this faith is alive. This faith is meant to change the world. And it can't change the world if you hide it, can it? You can't box it in and then kind of have your your cake and eat it. Often as Christians, we want our cake and eat it, but we come to that in a second. But there's a very clear process in chapter 1 of James, which I've just read, but I'll read again. Why why should our deeds reveal our faith? Well, in chapter 1, verse 21, James says, Get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you in other words when you accept christ when you accept jesus the word of god you accept him into your life that's stage one stage two comes in verse 22 do not do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves do what it says step one is accepting christ as your savior step two then is engaging with the wisdom and the word of god through the bible listening to the voice of god as he speaks Uh, through his word and through other ways perhaps in line with his word. You become a doer of the word. You don't just listen about loving your enemy. As a Christian, you start thinking, yes, I should love my enemy. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to love them. That that week may may mean not punching them. It may not mean mean inviting them around for dinner on week one, but you'll build up to that. But week one may be just hating them slightly less or maybe ringing them up and say hello or smiling. But you become a Christian, then you have the word of God, you're a doer of the word, and you do it. And that leads to step three, which is verse 26 to 27. And James says, those who consider themselves religious, yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves. And their religion is worthless. Ouch. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. It's a very clear three-pronged attack. You accept Christ, the word of God. You engage with the wisdom of God and you begin to put it into practice, to live out your faith. And then that is shown by what you do, your true religion. Faith, truth, action. And that's how James can say the faith some of you have is dead because you're not doing any of these other bits. You're not caring about the poor. You're not keeping a tight rein in your tongue, so therefore, your faith is dead. And it's quite uh, tough stuff. Non-Christians get it, don't they? Non-Christians get it. As Christians, we sometimes want our cake and eat it. We want the faith, and we, we want God to move mightily, but sometimes we want to keep a little bit of sin behind, a bit that we quite enjoy the bit that it's a bit tough to say no to. We keep that there. But non-Christians get it. They say, I thought Christians weren't supposed to do that. I didn't think Christians were allowed to get drunk. I didn't think Christians were allowed to swear. Are Christians allowed to do that? And we think, oh, no, 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 no. it doesn't really matter. It depends what church you go to. Um, you know, it doesn't really matter. It depends what Bible you read. If you read the message, it's fine, it's whatever. But it's not, is it? Because there's a very clear thing that I've become an ambassador for Christ. Non-Christians get it. They say, well, that's not how you're supposed to live, is it? You're a Christian, aren't you? Sometimes we don't often stand out, we blend in. I remember when I was 16, I've told you a story before, but 
Hey? Um, and uh, when I was, uh, the Grand National came, and I'm not putting down the Grand National. I like horses, they're okay. Um, and so I'm probably eating one at some point. Anyway, and so the Grand National came through, and, uh, and I'll leave that between you and God. I'm not dissing the Grand National particularly. It's 50p. I figured it was a worth of compromise. It's only 16, goodness. Anyway, and it came round, and I went and I said to Ted, Ted, I'll, I'll have a horse, the Grand National. Oh, my word. I think I shot someone. And, uh, and they all fell apart. Well, you know, call yourself a Christian. And, uh, and I got into this uh, long conversation with them where they said to me, very simply, the Christians gamble. No. Is that gambling? Yeah. But, but yeah, all right. Should you do it? Well, no, probably not. I'm off to be back. No, it's too late. Anyway. <laughs> and so when it came to the lottery, I'm not, it's between you and God, but they had one more, it backfired, because they had one more, they one more person to make the little syndicate thing for, for the firm to get their lottery tickets each week. And they came around and they said to me, uh, oh, you'll, you'll do the lottery, won't you? And I said, they didn't all speak like that. And I said, uh, no. I said, because I'm a Christian and Christians don't gamble. Man, they got cross then. Because I mean, they had to divide one pound between 27 of them. That was quite complicated. <laughs> anyway, a different issue. But that's a silly example. But non-Christians get it. As a Christian, you've got to ask yourself, would Jesus do this? This is right. It might be uncomfortable. It might be slightly irritating. It might be difficult. But am I living out my faith? Am I a doer of the word? Is my faith being expressed through my action? And so the key message of what uh, Francis read to us is simply faith without deeds is dead. He's going to say it three times, verse 17, verse 20, and verse 26. Faith without deeds is dead. And let's read that uh, passage again, and we'll just make a few comments uh, as we get towards the end. Verse 14, James says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Can such faith save them? The word good is profit or gain. In other words, what's the point of having faith that's not really real if you don't with no deeds, a kind of false faith, if it's not going to save you, what's the point? Can it save you? The answer is an implied no. He's not having a debate. He's saying no, it can't. Faith without deeds doesn't do anything to you. And he illustrates his point in verse 15 to 17. When James writes, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed but there's nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So he's saying it's not what they say is ineffective. It's not their faith is ineffective. What he's saying is even the words they're saying are useless. It's like someone poor coming and you saying, oh, wear a coat, hope you keep warm. The words you say are pointless. They don't do anything. It's better if you don't say them, actually. Isn't it? It's better if you don't say them. Because it's harsh to say that someone be warm and well-fed and not help them out. James is saying, these people that have this verbal confession of the truth, who just say, oh yes, I believe in Jesus, but I've never actually accepted him as Lord and Saviour. He's saying, even those words, what good are they to even say out loud if you don't actually do anything with it? It's not that saving faith is not being expressed in these verses, and that's why I wanted to make that point at the beginning. He's not saying you should start expressing your faith, you you Christians. He's saying that some of you are operating with a faith that's not faith at all. You say the truth, but you don't really believe the truth. You just have a simple understanding of who Jesus is. And in verse 18, he takes it even further. He says, but someone will say, you have faith, 
I have deeds. Think of our firework. Show me your faith without your deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. How on earth can you prove to someone what you believe if it doesn't change what you do? James is saying there, isn't he, very clearly, your grasp of truth hasn't taken root in your heart. You've got to show your faith by what you do. In the New Living Translation, it says, I can't see your faith if you don't have good deeds. I can't see it because you're not living it out. And in verse 19, this is the verse that no one wants me to read this morning. This is the hammer blow of the entire section. He says, you believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. This is the hammer blow. Those people who are just giving lip service to the truth, who haven't accepted Christ as their saviour, but are very happy to be in the community and say, oh yeah, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe he rose from the grave. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe one day he'll come back and judge the living and the dead. Yeah, I believe all of that. James says, guess what? So does the devil. In fact, the devil needs no convincing about the truths of Christianity. He is as firm a believer as anyone in this room. Because he believes wholeheartedly Jesus is the Son of God in the Trinity, in the virgin birth, in the return of Christ at the end. But James says to this group of people, the one difference between you and them is they respond to that truth. Some of you don't even do anything. Ouch. And then in verse 20 to 25, he gives those two illustrations of Abraham and Rahab. And then he comes back in verse 26 to bring us back to the final point. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Next week, um, because we're close to Advent, we're going to look at some of those practical um, teachings in James. So it'll be very different to this morning. But the challenge has got to be heard, hasn't it? The challenge has got to be heard. Because let me ask, um, or let me just say, should I say, Maybe you come week in, week out on a Sunday morning, and it's good, good to come, it's just right to come to church, which everyone did. And maybe you believe. Maybe you're happy to say you believe in Jesus. Maybe you're happy to say, yeah, he's probably God's son. I believe that. Yeah, I believe he's God's son. I believe he was born at Christmas to a virgin in a stable. I believe that, yeah, I believe he's in heaven. I believe he's alive. Yeah. Let me ask you, is it just a verbal confession of truth? Are you just repeating the truth? Have you ever actually asked Jesus Christ into your heart was there a moment that you can look back to and you can say I took that truth and I let it in I took that truth about Jesus being God's son and I asked him to be my saviour I turned away from my life and I became his follower have you ever actually done that have you taken that moment where this verbal confession that isn't going to save you because it can't transforms into living faith And maybe this morning that is you. Maybe this morning you believe all the right things but you've never had the opportunity to ask Jesus into your life. Or maybe you are are someone who genuinely believes and maybe all this about having faith that doesn't save isn't quite for you. But are you acting as if you're one of those people James is writing to? I'm not sure what's worse. Are you a genuine believer in Christ? Can you look back to that moment where you asked him into your life, you got baptised, everything is as it should be. But is your faith being expressed through action? Does your heart express itself in your hands? If I was to light that firework again, I won't, because we need to go home at some point. It takes too long to go out. But that firework is an illustration. You can look the part of all the potential, but never light it. If you lit your faith, it may be saving faith. You may have your place in heaven secured. But does anyone know any different to anyone else that you hang out with? Do you look and sound and feel and act differently? 
And so let me give you some opportunities to put your faith into action in this church. Um, we're, we're clearly going to have a year of prayer um, with our prayer triplets and one or two other things that will be coming up very soon with Day's Prayer for UK. But if you're a member of this church or wider church, you'd have seen Andrea's email a few weeks ago. You'll know that our local secondary schools produced a letter um, telling us about the danger of drug taking in the local area, not just Sawbridgeworth, but Harlow and Stortford, and how actually we're living in a situation right now where many of our young people have access to drugs that perhaps they didn't a few years ago. And many of them are taking them, and it's leading to a worse, a worse drug problem. And in fact, if you don't know your town very well, I can tell you that there are hot spots around Sawbridgeworth where people pull up their cars and deal drugs. In Sawbridgeworth, yes. Even here. Because it's getting worse. The country is beginning to unravel. It is beginning to unravel. And it's good that we're going to get praying. Hallelujah. And so Andrea is burdened like David to do uh, prayer walking around the town every week for as long as it takes. To pray into those areas where it's dark, where people are dealing drugs and ruining our children's lives and saying, God, not here. Kingdom, come here. Holy Spirit, work here. We want to pray people out of our town. We want to pray them out of their drug dealing business, actually. But we want to pray our young people off it. We want to pray people into the kingdom of God and out of the kingdom of darkness. Have you got an hour a week? Half an hour a week? Can you join the team? There's 12 of us at the moment. A lot more in the church. That's a way of expressing your faith. Maybe you could get involved with Make Lunch. We're passionate as a, a church for helping those whose budgets are stretched. Every Wednesday of every school half term, every week of every school holiday, we put on an event called Make Lunch to help people. Perhaps you could get involved with that, sacrificially, perhaps. You may even take a few hours off work to help. Why not? Why not? What else are we going to do with our time? What else are we going to do? Open Door, Zone, Haley, the different ministries we do, always need people to help serve God and change people's lives. And of course... What Dave shared a few moments ago, prayer for the UK. Will you sign up and actively tell other people to sign up to pray for our nation? This faith of ours is meant to change the world. And it has changed the world over and over and over for 2,000 years. The Roman Empire was Christian, became Christian because Christians spoke and acted like Jesus. Well, our nation again needs its church to rise up and be proactive. Not just a great people of faith but great faith that finds its expression through works. Let this town know that there is a church in Sorbidgeworth, and it loves it. Let that be us, Lord. Let that be us. Shall we pray? Lord God, we just lift up, Father, the thoughts in the book of James. And yeah, Lord, it's, it's to the point, Lord, and he just sort of makes that point and moves on. And Father, but Lord, we're challenged. Lord, I'm challenged. Father, it's easy for us to, to do a bit and say that's enough. But Lord, we're called to spend ourselves on behalf of the poor. We're called to be a people who go the extra mile, who give all our good stuff to those who need it. Father God, we're called to be people who are different, who look sound and act different. Lord, not from a position of piety, but Lord, a position of Christ-likeness. May people see so, so much of your love in us that Lord, they want to know more. Fill this church with seeking hearts. And Father, for our various initiatives all coming up, be it outside the church or within the church, 
Lord, anoint them with the power of your Holy Spirit and do great works in this place. Only, Lord, make us a people worthy of the faith your Son died to give to us. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.